Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday, the 9th of July, and I'm your host, Hugo Goodridge coming to you from the New Arab in London. This week we hear about the arrested TikTok women of Egypt and how the government of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi continues to oppress the rights of Egyptian women. Which is that the authorities are very interested in drawing red lines. They get to dictate who gets to speak and how they get to speak and they are not happy about anyone speaking against them and in this and then famed cafe owner human rights and lgbt activist and author median al jazeera talks to the new arab voice about life in jordan growing up around the region and his new book it, it, it takes years to figure out that you are gay and to accept that you are gay and then deal with the inter- with the turmoil of being gay in our culture but first <laughs> palestine has witnessed multiple protests over the past 2 weeks with many demonstrators calling for the removal of palestinian president mahmoud abbas from office protests erupted after the death of nizar banat Joining us to discuss ongoing events in Palestine is journalist for the New Arab and friend of the podcast, Diana Agul. Hi, Diana. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Diana, who was Nizar Benat and what happened to him? So Nizar Benat was a vocal critic of the Palestinian Authority. He was consistently posting videos on social media discussing the way in which the authority conducts itself and the internal corruption that is going on. So he was detained from his home by the PA and he ended up dying at the hands of the security forces which is notorious for its abuse of dissidents and prisoners. Um were there specific uh, charges he was brought in on or was this just uh, an arbitrary arrest? It was an arbitrary arrest. What's been the response to his death in Palestine by both the people and the authorities? So the authorities have scrambled to try to find a way to blame somebody and arrest people who were responsible for his death in order to cover themselves. However, amongst the Palestinian people, Banat's death did fuel anti-Abbas protests and these protests weren't something that just popped up in direct response to his death they were there because his death exacerbated the expression of discontent towards the palestinian government in the west bank and now that the repression of palestinian voices has costed a prominent palestinian life the discontent in the west bank has awakened opposed to beginning so if banat's death was the straw that broke the camel's back what are the other issues that have been building up amongst the palestinian people and their discontent with the government so this discontent has been going on for decades at varying degrees you have students for example who 
consistently used to complain and still complain that if you weren't part of the Fatah Student Union, um, it would be very difficult for you to find a job. Any opposition was automatically um, suppressed and gaslit as being a supporter of Hamas. So there was this dichotomy and there still is one that has been laid out by the PA that you are either with us or you're with Hamas. So leaving little room for actual manoeuvre for those who want democracy to thrive within Palestine. There has been a lot of discussion about the Palestinian Authority being very complacent and even enabling the illegal Israeli occupation. In what way? By not being harsh enough on Israel, by not allowing Palestinians the right to demonstrate and by not having a strong enough opposition to certain Israeli land grabs. And this actually goes back to the 90s um, when Yasser Arafat signed the Oslo Accords. Mahmoud Abbas has been around for years now. Um, Will he survive these protests or is this the end of the line for his premiership? And if that's the case, then what future does the Palestinian Authority have without him? So Abbas will survive these protests and we need to remember that his presidency actually expired in 2009 and he has still been president ever since. There is very little room for Palestinians to manoeuvre under the Israeli occupation for a start, which means that it's very difficult for them to organise physically and with the online crackdowns um, by the Israeli authorities and the Palestinian Authority. This is extended to this being a virtual issue as well. So the last elections that were supposed to take place during this summer um, would have been the first to take place in 15 years, and they were cancelled partially due to Israel refusing to allow East Jerusalemites to vote. Mahmoud Abbas knew that these elections would be bad for him. So this, I presume, would have come a huge relief for him. There's also a deep oligarchic system within the Palestinian Authority that needs to be dismantled before Palestinians can find hope for a bright democratic future. Thanks very much for joining us, Deanna. Thank you. Ten years? I didn't do anything immoral to deserve all this. I was jailed for ten months and didn't say a word after I was released. Why do you want to jail me again? This is the voice of Hanin Hassam, a 20-year-old university student. She's crying about the 10-year sentence she was handed by Egyptian courts on June 22nd. Just hours after she posted this video on her social media profile pleading for mercy, Egyptian police knocked on her door to take her away. Hanin was a social media celebrity with almost a million followers on TikTok before a court in Cairo accused her of human trafficking. On the same day, another influencer, Moada Aladham, was also sentenced to six years for the same crime. 
Hanin and Mawada's stories are unfortunately not unique under Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's rule in Egypt. Hanin Hassan and Mawad al-Adam were among a series of women arrested for videos that posted on TikTok or Instagram. This is Rothna Begum, the women's rights researcher for the Middle East and North Africa region for Human Rights Watch. They all happen to be women who are fairly young usually, but not all of them, uh, but who happen to have almost million, over a million or some are almost a million followers um, in their social media platforms. And the authorities' arrests of these women, which are known as, which are being referred to as morality arrests of the women, uh, is about their online conduct and seems to be a sort of a popular, populist tactic to sort of accuse these women of sort of um, public indecency or, and, you know, really preying on women who already face deeply rooted discriminatory attitudes. And, you know, it's part of a much broader campaign, you know, repressing freedom of expression and association. So what we're really seeing here is this campaign to go after women's social media influencers who, who really do have large followings and punishing them for, for their popularity, essentially, in the guise of morality, where the government wants to sort of position itself as sort of a vanguard of the Egyptian people's morality. In one video, Hassam told her 1.3 million followers that girls could get paid to work for her. And this is why she was accused of human trafficking, even though her legal team and human rights defenders say these claims were unfounded and do not abide by international law. But Hanin and Mawada weren't even criticizing the government. So why did the state really go after them? Well, I do think most people know that, the, that Egypt has a morality police. That is an actual unit that exists in Egypt. Most people know of the morality police in Saudi that once existed with a lot of power and in Iran, but they don't know that Egypt actually has a morality police. Um, and that there are these laws that really restrict and uh, um, freedom of expression with this very overbroad definition. So we're talking about charges that are not properly defined things about public indecency, undermining family values, some of which are new. These are not old laws. You know, some of them came in the 2018 cybercrimes law under CISI's administration. What we're seeing is that the authorities have realized that they can tap into this sort of more conservative forces um, and sort of, you know, to show themselves as if they are doing what the people want them to do, which is to um, rein in uh, behavior that is considered to be against Egyptian values, if you will. But the problem is when you look at these videos, when you look at what the women actually are doing, it's no different to how they may be dressed in regular life or the, the way that they're acting or singing or dancing is what you would see on Egyptian TV anyway. So there is nothing abnormal really about their behavior. And that really highlights and shows up the authorities for what they're really doing, which is that the authorities are very interested in drawing red lines. They get to dictate who gets to speak and how they get to speak. And they are not happy about anyone speaking against them. And in this case, these women are not even you know, government critics, they're not saying anything very specifically against the government, but they have had a huge, hugely powerful followings. And in that sense, they present themselves as a potential threat to the authorities because they're becoming very popular. And the authorities also see them as a, as, as a great way to assert themselves as a sort of, as I mentioned, a vanguard, you know, to, as defenders of morality 
so that they can be seen as, uh, as, as, as doing the good for the more conservative parts of society. Freedoms in Egypt are increasingly curtailed under al-Sisi's rule since he came to power in 2014. So this clampdown on celebrities is not unusual. Several belly dancers and pop singers have been targeted in recent years over online content deemed too racy or suggestive. Egypt has also passed increasingly strict laws regarding internet controls, allowing authorities to block websites seen as a threat to national security and monitoring of social media accounts with over 5,000 followers. Rights groups warn that this curtailing of personal freedoms especially affects Egyptian women. The wave of arrests of celebrity TikTokers and Instagrammers in 2020 coincided with a resurgence of Me Too complaints in which Egyptian women took to social media to speak out about their personal experiences with gender-based violence, assault and rape. And what we saw is that the, the government's aggressiveness, you know, going, really going after these women with this obscure, you know, obscure charges for their online conduct as women's social media follow as, as women's social media influencers and yet their real failure to go after the men who have been accused of sexual violence by women uh, online as well if anything what we've seen is that the authorities are particularly reluctant it took them a very long time to in, in particularly in one case of the gang rape and the firm uh, gang rape at the ferment hotel in cairo back in 2013 which really came to the fore last year we saw the authorities taking their time before they issued an arrest warrant, allowing a number of the suspects to flee the country. Um, after the, they, they did do that, they invited people to come forward, witnesses to come forward, but then they arrested some of those witnesses and subjected them to arbitrary detention, abusive anal exams, um, and, even, uh, you know, and even smeared their reputations, really interfered with their privacy and, and still subjecting them to travel bans as well. So what we saw was that the government's approach to sexual violence is to really do very little where they can. And even when they do actually try to investigate, they may actually go after the very people, including the survivors who have come forward to report uh, sexual violence as well. Hanin and Mawada can still appeal the sentence handed by the courts. But increasingly strict laws, along with the recent wave of arrests of social media celebrities, could have vast repercussions for the future of human rights in Egypt. It also has a chilling effect on women who might be wishing to sort of have uh, social media personas, also see um, a career potentially as social media influencers or small amounts of income that they can make as social media influencers. It sends them a message that if they become very popular, if, you, if they use similar apps, that they could also find themselves targeted by the government for their actions. And it's incredibly sad. If you look at what these women are doing, you know, they're particularly young women. They're women from these low-income backgrounds. They're trying to just find ways to make income, which is completely understandable, and, and ways in which women from around the world are finding ways to make income as well, not just women, but men too. And yet they're being punished because in, in a country like Egypt, where you have an administration that is incredibly repressive, they will come after you because they will then see you as a threat. Madian Al-Jazeera is a Palestinian-Jordanian who was born in Kuwait. In 1997, he opened Aman's Books at Cafe, the first internet cafe and bookstore in the Arab world. 
Since its founding, Madian has been engaged in human rights work and LGBTQIA plus activism. His memoir, Are You This or Are You This, was published just last month, and it's a story about identity and worth. Thank you, Madian, for joining us on The New Arab Voice. For our listeners who don't know who you are, can you give us a short introduction about yourself and about the memoir? Um, uh, my name is Madian Al-Jazeera, and I'm a Palestinian Jordanian. And this book really started out with my coming out to my, my mother and my parents, which wasn't an easy ride at the beginning. And it is called, Are You This or Are You This? which is the first question my mother asked me. This book is about identity and worth. And different aspects, you know, it, it just made it growing up and going through life. This is a memoir. A person or I have seen my value go up and down, depending on where I was, how I was. And it all depended on many things. I was born in Kuwait, but, I was, but I'm not Kuwaiti. I wasn't allowed to be. I, have a, I had a Jordanian passport when I was born, but I had never been to Jordan. But yet I, had, I needed to somehow be Jordanian with, with that piece of paper. Um, my parents are Palestinian, and of course the culture at home and the continuous reminder of who we are as displaced Palestinians makes me more and more Palestinian and a person with a cause. So, you know, there's a lot of... A lot of mixed identities. Um, I'm a Muslim, or I grew up Muslim, and I feel like Islam's been robbed off of me and stolen from me because nowadays the Islam I see is nowhere close to the Islam I grew up with. Now, on top of all of this, I'm a gay man. So how does that fit on my side of the world? So this feeling of displacement has always been lingering and, and happening and continuously reminding me of where do I belong? Where am I? Who am I? Am I this or am I that? Does the story of the book kind of feature how your perception of, you know, being a gay man in the Middle East, does it change throughout the, the story? You know, in, in the book it does and outside of the book it does. This book is probably the best thing I've done for myself. It is difficult growing up watching those people you love the most or all of your friends and all of your family members and all of your fellow patriots vote against your right to exist. Nothing more painful than that. It, it, it takes years to figure out that you are gay and to accept that you are gay and then deal with the, inter with the turmoil of being gay in our culture. Throughout these years, You, you learn to lie. It doesn't take us very long to realize that we're different. And we try to adapt and we try to fit in and we try to fit into the other people's stories. And, and, and the, so, but through the years and through this book, I mention all of that. I mention falling in love with a woman or maybe falling in love with the idea of falling in love with a woman because I really wanted to fall in love and get married and have children and be like everybody else. And, then, and I put down, you know, short, small stories that show how my value and worth was affected, you know, affected the way I navigated professionally and emotionally through my life, through my memoir. And, and the memoir um, talks about how you've kind of traveled all over the world, finding, you know, homes in San Francisco, New York, Hawaii, Tunisia. Was there like a specific 
place that you felt signified a, an important shift in the way that you viewed your your story and your life? All countries give, gave me different tools to navigate through my life. There isn't one that is better than the other. Now I'm in Amman, in Jordan, and you know it took me a few years before I could actually own it and 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 own this passport that I have. You know, I have a Jordanian passport, and now I look at it and say, yes, I am Jordanian. I love Jordan. I love living here. I don't ever want to be pushed out from this country just for being gay. Uh, this is my home. You know, when the book was published and it was announced, you couldn't stop me from smiling for a few hours in the morning because for once I felt I was no different than anyone else in the street. I am Madian Al-Jazeera, the son of, and I was a Jordanian, I was an Arab, and I'm a gay man, and it's out. There you go, it's out. I'm no different than anybody else. That only went on for, for a couple of hours. And then I started to think some more. I was like, oh gosh, what if I got some hate? What? A, oh gosh, what if I got some hate mail? What if I got some threats? What if this, what if that? And that's what I lived through. How how easy is it to be a gay man in Jordan? Um, it has the reputation of being a, one of the more liberal um, countries in the region, but you know how re- how is it on in reality? I love Jordan. I just I can't get over it. I love Amman. I this is I don't ever want to leave this 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 city. It's a it's a land of plenty. What could I ask for more than this? Homosexuality here is not criminalized. But there are these bylaws where if you do anything that tarnishes the qalid we call the culture or the nature and culture of the country could be used against you as illegal. And for me, it just, I don't even like to talk about my private life. My private life is in my bedroom. And it's such a shame that we are pushed to talk about it, to talk about my sexuality or our sexualities. It should be a private thing. But yet somehow people find the time and the energy to put some hate and talk back. I, after this book, after the launch of this book, I really don't know what to expect, but I'm ready for whatever comes my way. So in 1997, when you opened Books at Cafe, was it easy to open up such a space in 1997? And, and how has it been opening up a space that, that gives the opportunity for, you know, the LGBT community and is a very inclusive space. How has it been to open such a space in Jordan, in Amman? It was a piece of cake. Um, uh, Books Cafe has a small gallery and a gift shop and a bookshop and, you know, and a cafe, restaurant and terraces and little rooms where people meet and talk, you know, and down the line, you know, and it became mirror because as I started to grow a little older and more wiser and I started to look around you know when you have that piece of you know that small little peacefulness in you and you sit back and you look at what you've created and you're like you're like wow you know this place is really reflecting who I am this comfort level that that somehow Books at Cafe gave to everybody attracted everybody the inclusiveness was beautiful and is beautiful because everything and everybody is there, all walks of life, um, you know, from, you know, from the higher end of society to 
you know, different social incomes to a cab driver. It, it, it attracted everybody. And I think that comfort attracted the gay community as well. It's not like you walk in and there's a rainbow flag and it's not like you walk in, there's something that says gay cafe. It isn't because, you know, we have politicians that started to hang out there, musicians, artists, uh, men, women, single women enjoy being there because they feel like it's a place they won't get harassed or they, it's a place where they could be at ease. Amongst all of these comforts came the gay community. And, and it, you know, and just some people choose to call it a gay cafe. It is not a gay cafe. It's a cafe for everybody. I like to label Books at Cafe as an inclusive place to be. You know, when we first opened, there was no, we were the first internet cafe in the Middle East. Um, the authorities here didn't know how to license us. So they licensed us as an IT company with a cafeteria because they did a cafeteria and the bookshop. So it's almost like three different licenses just to be able to, you know, put something that included everything that we did. Um, but we, we were fully supported, I think, by the government. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The New Arab Voice. It was produced by myself and Gaia Karamatsa and Nick McAlpin. Stay tuned for the next episode of The New Arab Voice, which will come out in two weeks' time. In the meanwhile, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. And if you get the chance, you can drop us a rating, as that really helps out. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.